Welcome to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, the podcast for all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Oh, hey, Poetry Outlaws. It's uh, about 11.30 on a Friday, and it's actually melting. It's about minus six. Uh, Very sunny, drippy, mushy. I just went on a glorious walk, and often when I go on my morning walks, I will take pictures of what I call the three things, and that helps focus my walk. And today I was just enjoying stretching my arms and legs so much because I've been in a lot of lower back pain and I got acupuncture a few days ago, which as those of you who know who've gotten it, it does eventually work, but at first it can make you feel a lot worse. So I've been moaning and groaning the past few days about that. But uh, today I was really enjoying my walk and I wasn't going to take any pictures. And then I saw this art box, which was full of little canvases and cards and looked like a lot of things that kids had made and that made me happy that it wasn't vandalized and then I saw a sign about bees and how they're being kept at our local community center and that made me happy and then I saw kids uh, sliding down the slide that was created for the Byzantine Winter Festival in my neighborhood on the weekend so that was uh, delightful and then unfortunately I came back and saw that someone had not only done, which is often the usual, piling up of books in the book box with the genres all mixed up, but they'd tossed, I don't know if this this was the same person, of course, they'd tossed uh, a bunch of books, uh, including some lit mags out in the snow, and they were all covered in frost, and their covers were curled back, so I was, uh, yeah, a little miffed about that. I just don't understand the mindset of somebody who would do that, but there you go. There's all sorts, and Yeah, people get angry about literature, reading, books. Uh, I've seen that over the course of my life, especially with uh, ex-mother-in-laws who uh, would get very miffed that I was sitting there with a book and basically proving by that action that I was better than everybody else. So sorry, it sucks to be you. So today I'm doing the uh, intro to what will be tomorrow, the Brian Brett homage which will be a commingling, as I said last week, of him reading, me reading one of his poems, a bit of his prose, some more formal commemorations, and then some random memories from people on Facebook, and some private uh, little bits and pieces about the uh, relationship that people had with Brian, which is, of course, complex in all of its beauty. Uh, so yeah, this is this is the po- poetry poetry roundup. Uh, I was thinking, I don't really like the word roundup. Maybe it's a square up. Maybe it's a rectangle up. Maybe it's a quadrangle up. A trapezoid up. Okay, a rhomboid up. Uh, or maybe it's a, a poetry news, a poetry re-news. So what have I been reading and seeing and taking note of in the poetry world this week? Well, I just got the LRC, the Literary Review of Canada, in the mail yesterday, and I noted that this relates back to my This and That episode, where I was looking at two best Canadian poetry anthologies, and the latest one, the 2024 one, edited by Bardia Sine, and he has a piece, uh, a backstory piece at the end of the LRC, 
and it kind of, uh, well, riffs off his introduction to the anthology, and he says one thing that I think is quite appalling, and then a couple of other things which are interesting, and which I partially agree with, but at the same time have, uh, you know, um, reservations towards as well. So what's the first thing that I find appalling? Well, he said, I didn't fret over whether I was the best person to select the best poems. Okay, he made that clear in his introduction to the anthology. It's an entirely subjective exercise for which either no one is qualified or anyone is qualified. It's a poetry anthology, not the Lancet. Um, and your point is, now, here's where it gets really silly. They could just as well have asked a child. Oh, okay, so a child who's just started reading poetry or doesn't read poetry at all is the same as somebody who's been reading poetry their whole lives and has an ear and some intelligence and some discernment uh, over whether they feel, which is not entirely subjective at the same time because there is poetry that's working and poetry that's not working, um, if you trust your ear and your intuition especially, uh, than other poetry. So I think the notion of saying a child could select the best poetry uh, for an anthology, I mean, is completely absurd and is removing any responsibility from your own role and also just devaluing the art of criticism and the ability to understand the art form which you practice. Uh, I certainly have no interest in reading an anthology of poetry selected by a child, um, unless it was poetry written by their peers, by other children. Uh, so that's just a <laughs> kind of a, a catastrophic denigration, if you will. Uh, so then he goes on to say, we take poetry too seriously. And then he contrasts the poetry that was kind of trifling and um, uh, full of vernacular and uh, aloof and so forth that was written in the 80s, he says. Oh, not the 80s, the mid to late aughts, the 2000s. Okay, so when poetry got maybe uh, a bit too clever and... Um, just detached. Uh, but then he says poetry now, he says it's gotten, not gotten worse, but instead of it being full of, you know, playful elusiveness or, uh, you know, more avant-garde work, we have a poetry that has a social justice message with a stifling orthodoxy. And most poetry, it seems to him, are about trauma or the politics of personal identity. Some of these were excellent, he averts, but many were indistinguishable fluff. Poetry, he says, may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. I totally agree. Poetry may be enlightening, but it is not pedagogy. The best poems do more than soothe or teach. Absolutely. And I've talked many times about how the politics of personal identity is overwhelming the art form. Uh, that shouldn't be first and foremost. That is secondary or third or, you know, just forms the, the matrix, the nexus from which your poetry emerges. It shouldn't be the first thing that we pay attention to in this art form, nor what it says, uh, what it's uh, saying for good or ill, for better or worse, for this side or that side, black or white, all those awful binaries and dichotomies that um, may or may not be useful. And uh, poetry, first and foremost, is an art form. 
He doesn't go on to talk about poetry as an art form, though. So that's my irk, because if he went on to talk about poetry as an ancient art that requires an ear that thinks about things like diction and line break and rhythm and meter and the, the energy behind language and, and that, that mystery behind the intuition of listening and paying attention in the world. If you wanted to talk about that in contrast to uh, the message, the politics, the personal identity and so forth, then that would make sense to me. But I just feel like he doesn't really have a sense at all and thinks it doesn't matter really uh, what poetry is. Uh, it's just got to do something that it's not doing. And he doesn't know what that is because, hey, a child could actually make these decisions about what poetry works and what poetry doesn't work. So, yeah, that's a bit disappointing to me. So I am going to read you a couple of quotes from a few things that I've come across this week. First of all, (laughs) this doesn't relate directly to poetry, but I found it uh, amusing and also probably very useful. Uh, It comes from the show Dark. Uh, which is a fantastic sci-fi time-traveling tale from Germany. It's three seasons on Netflix. And there's a line in it. It's very, uh, you know, Freudian, Nietzschean, uh, you know, biblically influenced. Um, And it says, have hope and no expectations. That way you might get a miracle instead of a disappointment. (laughs) That's actually... What, one of the characters is remembering something his mother said to him. So I just find that amusing. Um, then the other one I'm reading. Uh, so here's two dead poets. Uh, Tony Hoagland. He has the Underground Poetry Metro Transportation System for Souls, Essays on the Cultural Life of Poetry, which is one of the Poets on Poetry out from University of Michigan Press series. And he's talking about something I've also talked about quite a bit, what happens with uh, poets all becoming teachers? And, you know, I absolutely adore teaching, but I really loathe institutions and feeling fixed in those zones and them defining what I do and don't do. And he says that it's very hard for poets these days to uh, write poems of rage and opposition, uh, as with, you know, Ginsburg's Howl, say, Because, he says, we recognize our own participation in the systems that enclose us. We are largely tame. And that, to me, is one of the biggest difficulties of doing these BFAs, MFAs, and then getting in these programs where we're teaching the next generation, the next generation of of writers, is that we get enclosed in the system where we're thinking about things like grades and ratings and we're thinking about cliques and who approves and disapproves of us and how will that lead to us getting more job security and so forth. And that teams us as writers or it has the capacity to. And that kind of connects to um, what I was reading briefly. Again, I read the whole book from beginning to end, but I was pulling out a chapter from it, Carol Musso's book. And let me see if I can find what it's called. I put it back in the bookcase already. It's about writing in general. And she talks a lot about how she got the opportunity to teach writing within the MFA program, but not as somebody who had advanced degrees, but somebody who had experience as being a writer in the world. And so she originally doubted herself, but other people believed in her. 
and they gave her this opportunity and this chance. But we have this cycle now where you can't really let people teach in the system like they used to at the beginning. Uh, Susan Musgrave, Brian Brett, Patrick Lane, George Bowring, and so forth that did not have advanced degrees taught in the system and still some teach in the system um, because they're asked to come in and instruct as writers, as poets, as those who have published many books, as those who have practiced their art, their craft for so many years. And that's the true teaching, uh, not somebody who's just gotten degree, 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 and now they're instructing in the classroom after one book. But we have to keep hiring them because otherwise nobody is going to pay money to get these degrees if at the end they don't have the potential of a job, that promise. But instead they see those who did not pay money for the degrees getting into the system and getting those jobs based on their experience writing in the world. So I think it's just uh, quite an awful cycle uh, where so much exclusion happens when it should be much more of a diverse ecosystem with all these voices and these energies and these perspectives enabled to exist. Okay, so back to a quote from a dead poet. I was reading about Louise Gluck, uh, an interview with her, and she was saying that as soon as you have a way of writing, you have to change it even if you hated it first, or as you can't fall into the familiar, or that essentially is death. And I think that's one of the absolutely beautiful things about being a poet is that because we have more freedom, we're not as bound by the economic system of publishing. In Canada, we have grants for presses to produce poetry books. So of course, you want them to find readers and you want them to be sold. But at the same time, it is not de rigueur. You're not going to rise or fall based on generally how many copies your book sells. So you have more freedom to explore different ways of writing. And, you, you know, I think in general, as an artist, period, that's the core of it. You should be free. And if you're not free, well, then you're not really creating art. You're creating a recipe. Okay, and lastly, okay, so my uh, tutoring and editing business is in dire straits lately with the plagiarism machine. And I've left film props between the pandemic and the strike and my body not feeling super duper um, from overstrain, overuse over the years. And so I am trying to find more bits and pieces of ways to earn a living, which is increasingly difficult. I review books. That's one of the ways that I make my bits and pieces. And I just want to reveal the fact that there needs to be desperately more funding for reviewers and critics in this country. I find it appalling that the Globe and Mail, say, as one example, does not review books of poetry anymore, does not pay critics to do that work. I noticed in the LRC there was no reviews of poetry. There was a couple of fiction reviews. Surely we can have one or two poetry reviews and pay the reviewers for doing this work. I find it just complete madness to keep releasing more and more and more poetry books every year and yet you don't have that fertile ground to receive them you don't have that ecosystem you don't have those channels for distribution and, and reviews and critical reflection and you know creating that that world of literature and not just all these kind of detached 
uh, releases that seem in the end to just be ways of expressing one's ego. And, you know, right now, I mean, I'm reading a 380-page book of criticism about poetry and, and literature, and I'm really enjoying it, but I'm reading 380 pages and taking notes and condensing my thoughts to write a 500-word review for $50. So let's break that down. Probably, what, it's 10 cents a word, probably $5 for the rest of my hours spent on the work. So it's very hard to convince a lot of people to do such things. And it's only because one, I'm desperate for cash. (laughs) Two, I love doing the work. And I've been doing it for over a decade now, uh, over 12 years. And it's really important to me. It's something that I value highly uh, as a task of writers in this country, something that we can contribute to the value of our literature as a whole. So there you go. There's my Friday rants and raves, nearly uh, 20 minutes of this and that. And tomorrow, yeah, I'll put together the Brian Brett Amash, and I look forward to having you be able to listen to it then. to Brian Brett, who was indeed a rogue, not an angel, a wild mind, a rare individual living in the world with uh, facets and aspects of being that I've not met anybody else who has to deal with them. Uh, Primarily among these, uh, having grown up with Kalman syndrome and having dealt with uh, issues of uh, lack of testosterone and the surgeries that followed, and the prognostications that he wouldn't live very long, and also his long uh, time on Trauma Farm on Salt Spring Island, where he did lots of things that other poets never get the chance to do or wouldn't want to do, uh, including butchering animals and hunting and uh, nurturing um, other species on his farm and in the wilderness surrounding it, or the the um, purported wilderness surrounding it. He was very critical of that notion because it doesn't really exist due to human incursion. But at any rate, I am going to, first of all, talk a little bit about 
um, Brian in general from his obituary and the talk on him from the Matt Cohen Award that he won in 2016. And then I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about how I knew Brian Brett and then how others knew Brian Brett from their uh, little memorial blurts on Facebook. And then I'll end with a uh, segment from his uh, essay, uh, Wind River, and then uh, a poem of his, The Qualities of Light. So from the CBC Memorial, it says, The BC author died on January 17th, 2024, at the age of 73. He published 13 books, including the poetry collection, The Color of Bones in a Stream, and his trilogy of memoirs, which I think is some of his finest work, Uproar is Your Only Music, Trauma Farm, A Rebel History of Rural Life, and Tuco in the Scattershot World, A Life with Birds. Brett, as I said, was born with Kalman Syndrome, a rare genetic condition which left him unable to produce male hormones. He was biologically androgynous until he had a surgery at 15, and his early years were thus fraught with bullying, abuse, and feelings of otherness. Now, as tough as it is to have those feelings of otherness, I have to feel that a lot of those moments of otherness, whether it's from sickness or other kinds of debility or perhaps living in an isolated geographical area, is actually good for the poet, the writer, the artist, because it sets them apart and gives them the time to consider different angles of existing in the world, which usually produces the most powerful kind of art, not going with the mainstream, with the masses, but finding your own strange niche. So at 20, a doctor gave him the prognosis he wouldn't live past 40. And of course, he lived to be 73. He started his career in the 1970s as a freelance journalist and critic, writing for nearly every Canadian newspaper. But above all, he was a poet, delighting in the beauty of the natural world and exploring food through writing. Now, for me, he was a better prose writer than a poet, but I think it's because uh, I prefer my poetry slightly less excessive. And he loved elaborating the extended metaphor or series of descriptors, especially in relation to food, which I, I find fascinating even though it's not particularly my thing. So many of his celebrated food poems are found in his collection, The Color of Bones in a Stream. And his other poetry collections include The Wind River Variations and To Your Scattered Bodies, which was published in 2022. And then they talk about his trilogy of memoirs. The first one about him living with Kalman syndrome, Uproar is Your Only Music. The second one about him running a farm for 26 years on Salt Spring Island with his partner Sharon Dubinin. Uh, and they split up in 2018. <clears throat> and uh, it won the Writers Trust Nonfiction Prize in 2009. That's Trauma Farm. And then Tuco in the Scattershot World, A Life with Birds, is the final memoir about Brett and his beloved parrot, Tuco, who was always perched on his shoulder when he was writing. And he was always giving back to the writing community in the forms of both teaching and service. So he started the BC Poetry in Schools program to bring poetry to the classrooms and taught workshops across the country. He was a member of Penn International, the League of Canadian Poets, the Fed of BC Writers, and was the chair of the Writers' Union in 2005. In 2016, he won the Writers' Trust Matt Cohen Award, celebrating a life of writing. Uh, but he said the delight is in doing it, the writing, not in being known for doing it, which is an absolutely necessary stance because if you're just writing for being known for doing it, you're not going to last very long for the most part. Okay, so here's the 
um, introduction to Brian that the selection committee um, used, I'll read bits and pieces of it, for the Matt Cohen Award 2016 in celebration of a writing life. They say Brian Brett was born in 1950 in BC, later attending Simon Fraser University, that's also where I went, until he left in 1970 to devote his time to writing poetry. So I don't believe he left with a degree, uh, as one could in that day and age and still teach later on in universities. He has since dedicated his entire life to writing as a poet, novelist, memoirist, and journalist. Uh, His work has appeared from the Globe and Mail to the Yukon News. For two years, he was poetry editor of the Vancouver province. Oh, those glory days when newspapers had poetry editors and there were poetry reviews published in them. Can we bring that back, please? He is also the author of 12 books of poetry, well, 13 by 2022, two novels, a book of short stories, and three works of memoir. And they talk about his books And then they talk about the work that he did in the schools and the libraries. Um, I remember when I was applying for the Toronto Reference Library, a writer-in-residence job, and and they wrote to me and they said, no, we gave it to Brian Brett. And I was like, okay, okay. (laughs) He is, in other words, a renaissance man, something of a rascal. I like that, you know, like it just really irks me when people die and all of a sudden they're, they're angels and they're so nice and kind and that's all they were. Let's have a full picture of a person's life and Brian Brett was definitely a rascal and he was of that era of poets like Al Purdy and Patrick Lane and you know yes Joe Rosenblatt and Pete Trower and so forth. Um, They were uh, renegades, uh, outlaws and definitely lived a life of uh, you know this peripatetic that they made a living from bits and piecing uh, they were often uh, engaged in multiple relationships at a time with lovers and so forth. So, uh, and they, you know, had strong opinions and stances. And sometimes that that irked people, that annoyed people, that frustrated people, that pissed people off. So, uh, you know, let's let's say it for what it is. You know, he was a full embodied human being for all of its darknesses and lights. All right, so... Now I want to turn to some of the memories. First of all, I'll let you in a little bit on what what Brian meant to me. So I met Brian, first of all, when I was very, very young. It, it was the 1991 uh, Galliano Writers Festival, the first writers festival I'd ever been to, and I was camping on Galliano. And I, you know, I don't think I really actually talked to him. I think I was too nervous. Uh, I was so very young, but I uh, was just beginning everything. And I was in awe, utter awe. I remember seeing Brian and Al Purdy and Patrick Lane and Susan Musgrave standing in front of the uh, Galliano Community Center Hall where they were going to be doing their readings and just being struck by the fact that, you know, he was tall and he was wearing these farmer's coveralls and believe a plaid shirt. He looked very husky, um, very solid, uh, had this, you know, kooky laugh, uh, very, you know, ruddy cheeks. And the way he read was very expansive and elaborative. And, you know, when he read his his most well-known poem, perhaps, I want to serve food to strangers, uh it just went on and on and on. And, and, he, and he was kind of chuckling as he read it because, you know, he knew it was just utterly over the top. 
And, you know, of course, that that works better in performance than on the page, you know, for the most part. Um, but yeah, he, he liked to push boundaries. And then let's see, uh, I was I was revisiting my journals of the time. And I, I seem to be missing some aspects of the diaries then because I know there was a couple of readings that we did together uh, with Joe Rosenblatt, uh, who is one of his friends. And uh, at one point, uh, Joe and I uh, went to stay at Trauma Farm. And I think I was reading with Marilyn Bowering at the church on Salzburg Island. And we stayed there. And of course, there was food and drink and conviviality and, and beauty of the gorgeous farm uh, which he sadly had to leave in, in 2018 after health issues and his um, marriage splitting up. Uh, and th- what I remember most, and I mean, I think this is the story that, that Joe talks about in his Parrot Fever uh, book of poems, and also he talks about it in his, um, I believe, in Hogwash as well, uh, his memoirs and essays, Um he talks about how <laughs> he got up in the middle of the night and he went to go and refresh his martini or something and he got startled by Tuco crying out and dropped a glass and felt like he was visited by a specter. And I remember Tuco calling out, Brian, Brian, like that with rolling R's and it being really quite creepy and also you know amazing that they had such a close bond and he really had no eyes for anyone else other than his master so uh yeah Brian and I we never really uh became close in the way that you know initially Patrick Lane and I did or much much later um and at a much greater uh extent uh Joe Rosenblatt uh but he was always there around the edges and, you know, I would hear about various things that had happened to him or things that he'd said to people. Uh, sometimes he could be lacking in support for younger writers or women writers and, you know, tell them things like they shouldn't publish this book or or that poem, uh, even though he was very supportive of others. So, I mean, that's just the way it goes, right? Like you're, you're just not going to be 100% supportive of everybody. And sometimes maybe he could be a little bit blunter or brutal about it. So uh, I think it was because of that that I, in the end, decided not to make him one of the recipients of my uh, my Mutsi Award, uh, which, you know, I think in in uh, in hindsight, he probably should have received the uh, Joe Rosenblatt Award that I started where people get $100 for meat and martini and a stuffed dog that is for renegade creators, which he certainly was. So that's basically how I knew Brian Brett. Um, I'm just going to read you a little blurb from something he wrote about what happened in the last couple of years of his life. He's talking about the brutal July of 2015. He lost his health to one of those ferocious hospital bacterias. And I also lost the love of my life, he says, who changed her mind about me after 38 years. Now, I don't know the details of what happened, but I'm pretty sure that Sharon just didn't change her mind about him. Uh, They obviously had a a lot of ups and downs and highs and lows, and maybe she just decided she didn't want to spend her her later years still dealing with those things. But of course, super tough. I mean, you know, 
owning a house now, I, I, I can't imagine the pain of losing it. And, you know, everything you've built, your gardens and your buildings and, and, you know, your flower beds and your animals and all that texture of the richest possible existence. So he had to give up his farm paradise with its orchard and large garden. He dreamed into existence when he was 17 years old. In 2018, I came out of the hospital after two months, a lowly renter in Vancouver once again, which is, you know, heart shattering to go back to that. And especially now when it's so expensive for the, you know, shittiest dive. So then the cancer surgeon told him that February that he had only a 50% chance of surviving the year. But then he decided he would live as fully as he could from that point on. He said he walked out of the hospital, looked at how blue the sky was, and realized that he had more years left in him, as indeed he did. Okay, I'm just going to read a tiny blurb about the magazine that he started, which was super important. Uh, it was called Blackfish, and it published, you know, the array of poets at the time, Earl Burney, P.K. Page, Dorothy Livesay, Alperti, Milton Acorn, Margaret Atwood, but also Blackfish published translations of Japanese and Chinese poetry by unknown writers, uh, and they also published, of course, Patrick Lane, Up and Comers, and 1971, the editor's new friend, Pat Lowther. Uh, so uh, George Woodcock said about Blackfish that it was several cuts above the ordinary little magazine. And yeah, so that was the early 70s. So very important um, to have these little magazines then especially, but still now. So, it, you know, he had his fingers in, in many important literary pies in BC. So here's uh, Yvonne Blomer, what she said. Ah, oh, rest in peace, beautiful poet and astonishing human. I picture Brian Brett now with Patrick Lane smoking again, drinking tea or whiskey again, because both of them, as they got older, had to give up both of these so-called vices, and singing poems out into the wide, wide skies. And then there's Belay Nickerson, who says, Brian Brett died yesterday. I had the pleasure of serving in the Writers' Union of Canada National Council while he chaired in 0506. He was mischievous, oh, indeed, magical, and had one of the most fascinating brains. I don't know if I've encountered a writer as well-read as he. He was also a fighter. I much preferred fighting on the same side as him. Oh, yes, if you were opposed to him, I'm sure you got your head uh, chomped off. All right, rest in poetry, my friend, he concludes. Then there's Elsie Newfield, or Newfeld, she says, you'll live on in your exceptional poems, essays, and books, and in the lessons you taught your many students, readers. Thanks for all your words. Never, ever have I watched someone eat with such gusto. You devoured food with the same passion that you pursued life in all its grit, glamour, and beauty. And then Sherry D. Wilson says, well, she, she creates a little poem here, Brian Brett, it's called, my home is filled with memories of Brian. He gave me so many small sacred things. Poetry and song at trauma farms, ceremonial bells, peacock feathers, clay pots and bowls of every size. A magician. So much part of my life. He made so many things beautiful. I am holding sorrow right now as he makes his way to the other side. His words, spirit, twist inside out of reality and realms as they do, as they did, as they will. Too sad to sleep. All I have is love. And then there's Diana E. Hayes, who remembers the memorable times when Theater Alive, the exclamation mark, produced the Salt Spring Island Erotic Literary Festival three years in a row. 
95, 96, 97. And Yvonne, Adelian, Brian, Sharon, and Diana coordinated the events. They had 12 plus authors each year, featured live music, visual art, and full catering. And then epic after parties at Trauma Farm happened. And they created posters and t-shirts. And there's these wonderful photographs of Pat Lane reading with Brian Brett and schmoozing it up. And then she says, RIP, dear friend. And Kim Goldberg. All right. She says, uh, well, actually, Kim Goldberg just reprints um, what I just read about the Matt Cohen Award, that he was a Renaissance man and something of a rascal. All right. And then there's Jolene Heathcote to finish this personal set of tributes. She says, what sad news. Somewhere there is a big booth in the corner of the bar and one by one the old boys, the old poets are gathering there with their pints and pitchers and telling the stories they made into poems. Ah, that beautiful, mythic, romantic history of these male poets. You know, wouldn't it be great if, you know, women poets had this mystique about them? Uh, Some of us do, just a few. I like to think of that, the darkness and the yellow light above them. Kevin Roberts, Patrick Lane, Al Purdy, Brian. There are others sitting there, but their names escape me just now. These men were friends, a certain type of man. I very much enjoyed being a young poet and a woman in their company. Those go together very well, young woman, poet in their company, because they were all womanizers. <laughs> the time was never dull. No, indeed. I hope to stumble into that bar someday and be welcome to sit with them again. A beautiful era in BC poetry is coming to a close. All right. And I'm going to conclude with his words. So first in Wind River, uh, which was one of his essays. And he's talking about the problematic notion of wilderness. He says, looking out of a cabin window in the Yukon, people believe they see wilderness. That's the myth they are telling themselves. They are viewing a severely impacted and in most places permanently damaged veneer. The natural world is disappearing at an astonishing rate. We all know that, but we look at a treed valley and convince ourselves Everything's all right. I watched this destruction in my own backyard of southern BC, forest after forest, salmon after salmon. Now the natural world has been replaced by pretty sunsets. The pollution in the atmosphere provides more color. And then he goes on more about the definitions of wilderness and how it's been destroyed and the contrast between settler and Aboriginal cultures. And he says there is no landscape without impact. Like a virus in a body, we are infecting everything, making it ours, destroying our home. And then he concludes by saying, In the future, I fear that real wilderness will only be found in the memories of those few who are wise enough to leave it alone, and its loss will be like the loss of poetry and song. We can only hope that we wake up much more than we are right now and ensure that that does not happen, each of us. So I'll finish with one of his pieces, that's not as long, um, but is very beautiful, called The Qualities of Light. Thank you, Brian Brett. Rest in fierceness. We were drinking jasmine tea in the dusk on the cedar deck, the last gleaming gone to a deeper blue. Summer blue, the evening star shooting hard out of the shadows. Over the pond, the first tiny bats skimmed the surface for mosquitoes drinking from the reflected sky. The light is always with us. We know the world by light and by the loss of light. The brutality of noon, the promising gray before a dawn creeping with tentative birdsong. 
the same gray that signifies a night wildly spent, the one where we all hang on too long, the stab of yellow through the evergreens in that last bolt before sunset, the green flash when the sun hits the water, the deep unknown glow in a woman's eyes as she lifts her legs beneath you and offers a taste of grace, the sparks when you hit your head on the high spike from nowhere, the tangible air in the mists of morning in a cornfield, or the mountain looking back from a candy blue lake in the alpine country, the memory of that lost lake retained in the pond beyond the deck, where we sit and dream the quiet emotions of dusk. Yes, the light holds us in its hands until one day we catch ourselves sitting on that deck with our jasmine tea and fine ceramic bowls, and we realize we've learned to understand fear, the promise that can't be kept, the loamy soil, the sweet bacterial earth, where we all began and where we all go away from the light. You've been listening to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians.